This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Good morning. Thank you, Bruce. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to uh, worship you. And I pray, Father, now as we look at your word that uh, from a flawed, flawed presentation, that somehow you would translate that to our hearts as perfect in your word. Father, pray that uh, as we look deep into what you have to say to us, that you would change our hearts and that you'd open our eyes to your word and your will. And we'd ask that in Jesus' name. And amen. amen. Okay. So, um, apparently, according to, I took some notes earlier here, that I'm a part of the shindig. We're going to get the shindig started, okay? And then, Karen, I had a question for you. <clears throat> Where'd she go? Okay, well, I was wanting to know what a high ice cream consumer was. I just didn't know what that was. Anyway, okay, go ahead. All right, so <laughs> you'll tell me later. Excellent. As somebody knows. I, I don't know. Anybody notice anything different? Thank you. <laughs> don't tell me Lynn doesn't pay attention, okay? You think he's sleeping back there. He is not, okay? Somebody ironed my pants. Okay, that is correct. That would be the correct answer. Because when I got ready to leave this morning, Dan, my wife told me, you're not standing up in front of the congregation with those pants on. They're wrinkled. So they're ironed, thank you. But I got her back because... I got no socks on. <laughs> she doesn't know that. But I'll bet she does before it's over with. Okay, all right. Well, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. And we're going to start off with a little, a little game game I call close enough, okay? So first of all, owning a building that has an apartment complex and uh, asking a contractor, Gary, we're, we're not talking about you, uh, asking a contractor, can you create a playground for the children? Oh, Karen, I got a question for you. <laughs> yeah. You can't sneak in, okay? If I'm in the pulpit, you can't sneak in, okay? So somebody will head out and go, where are you going? <laughs> what is a high ice cream consumer? <laughs> That's a volume issue, right? Okay, okay, good. All right, all right, fine. Good, all right, good, all right, good. Never mind. Okay, so we're playing the game close enough. And so I have, I own an apartment building complex, if you will, and there's children in the complex, and I would like for the contractor to build a playground for them. And my question is, is that good enough? <laughs> you don't have to answer out loud, just answer in your heart, okay? 
After they finished building uh, the hotel that uh, I own, the contractor says to me, it looks pretty good. I, I mean, there's a window or so that's a little crooked. And he asked me to come look. He says, I don't think anybody will notice. And I want to know, is it good enough? Uh, I said, well, you know, what I'd really like to have is some balconies for our guests. They can sit out in the evening, watch this sunset, if you will. And he says, okay, I can do that. I can build you a balcony. Of course, you know, the lowest bidder gets the contract. And then he says, is that good enough? <laughs> Inside, when we're building the home, my wife wants a receptacle close enough to the kitchen sink so that plug in her appliances, you know, to do what have you. And so when they're done, uh, he says, okay, I've done that. And then he says, is this good enough? Oh, shocking, isn't it? And finally, or not finally, but people that get the lowest contracts such for, you know, building, uh, you know, back to the playground equipment thing, you would understand it, Nate. And they, the teachers, the administration wants uh, playground equipment close enough to the school so that if the teacher needs to get to some of the children, okay, such as an injury or what have you, that they don't have to run across half an acre. You know, to get to them, the country says, yes, I can do that. And so they build the swing set and we want to know, is that close enough? Finally, and I know people are going, yes, <laughs> my favorite, you know, if I ever was going to have a tattoo, I don't have anything against tattoos, I just, anyway, point being, you take a picture into the tattoo artist, okay, and say, can you recreate this on me? Personally, I don't want to be a canvas, but some people, it's good, I like them, I mean, some of them are really cool. And so you, you take the picture into the uh, artists and say, can you recreate this? In fact, I'd like it on my back. Okay. And he goes, looks at the picture and he goes, sure, I can do that. And I want to know, is that close enough? <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe not. I hope you didn't pay a lot of money for that. So let me ask you, when we use the term, when we use the phrase, is that close enough? What do we mean? It's good. It'll work. I can live with it. Okay, it's okay. We'll call it done. It's not perfect, but it'll pass. And we'll go from there. That's kind of what we're going to talk about today, okay? Matthew. We talked about him last time. Do you remember? Who wrote the book of Matthew? Yeah, <laughs> tell me she's not paying attention. Yeah, Matthew did. Um, Levi, the tax collector. Okay, one of the twelve. And he's writing primarily to who? Do you remember? The Jewish audience, right? Yeah. So everything that Matthew's going to frame up, it's going to be in a Jewish mindset, so you have to go there. Okay, he's not going to explain a lot of things to you because he's having a conversation with a Jewish cultured person, right? And so his premise is, if you will, to prove to the Jewish nation that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, he is the long-awaited Messiah. 
We talked last time about Jesus did not meet their expectations. Do you remember? And the reality is that Matthew is saying, he's here. This is him. Okay, he takes it, the, the lineage uh, all the way back to Abraham, which is where they're going to start from. Okay, that's their uh, pivotal point in history. But really he takes it all the way back to Genesis 3, doesn't he? Okay, here is the Christ who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And Matthew is going to use a lot of Old Testament uh, <coughs> promises, but he's trying to get these people to understand Jesus is the fulfillment of these. And you'll see these, uh, Matthew has these five discourses broken up in there if you read it, and that uh, he talks about this, you know, you start with the Sermon on the Mount, and then you move through the commissioning of the disciples and the uh, uh, sending of them out. Jesus teaches in parables, okay, about the kingdom, and then he comes to some other principles, discourses that he teaches about the church and childlikeness. And by the way, why does Jesus always use children? Is the example, do you know? For the most part, children are humble and they're dependent, not independent. Do you get that? So anyway, and then he goes through uh, the, the final one, the Olivet Discourse, talking about the end of time, his second coming. So today, if, you, if, if we're in chapter 19, and from chapters 18 on through 20, if you look at it critically, and let me put a pair of glasses uh, on you so that you can uh, look through these lenses anyway. Jesus addresses a lot of selfishness, a lot about self, okay? And basically that's a heart issue that he's pressing on. And so when you're reading through those, look at the number of times that he addresses uh, talking about selfishness or yourself, okay, interjected in there. So anyway, we're looking at him now, and he's moved. Uh, he's moving away from uh, Galilee. He's moving down into Judea toward Jerusalem, and he's uh, teaching here. And so the, the story today is, uh, is familiar, and I want you to understand, it's not a parable. Okay, this is a real-life event that's recorded. It's recorded in Matthew, it's recorded in Mark, and it's recorded in Luke. And between the three of them, we come up with uh, the... Oh, the terminology, if you will, and we'll use it today, the rich, young ruler, okay? Uh, we figure out between those three Gospels that this kid was uh, apparently wealthy, uh, apparently of a younger age than at least me, and he ruled or had some element of authority, okay? And so he approaches Jesus, and let's uh, kind of pick it up from there, and we'll just take it. Uh, verse by verse, and I want you to see how this unfolds. And starting in verse 16, he says, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, I want you to grab up front the subject matter. Okay, not the emphasis of where Jesus is going with it, but I want you to keep in mind what is the subject. And the subject is eternal life. Okay? Keep that in your mind. The subject is eternal life. That's kind of the narrative of what's going on. It's not the emphasis. We'll get there. So he says, and he comes up to Jesus, and if there's any good news in this entire story, if you will, is that this guy came up to Jesus. He asked him, okay? He was the one that approached Jesus, right? Do you see that? 
Uh, he was apparently a, a good, God-fearing Jewish person. Uh, he recognized that Jesus had some element of authority, and he was concerned about what? Eternal life. Okay, that's the subject. He was concerned about eternal life. Apparently, he believed in life after death. And I would tell you that you can see as we move through the scripture, there's some sort of void in this guy's heart. But I do want to point out that I don't see this demeanor in a lot of people today. Number one, that they would approach Jesus, approach God with their questions, realizing that he has all authority. I don't see the demeanor that uh, they have a concern about their soul. And in reality, this whole business of life after death, it's not there. In fact, it's almost a joke today, life after death. In our small group a few weeks ago, we had a wonderful discussion about hell, and you think, well, that's fun. But it was serious. And I don't think people take hell seriously. Do you realize there's only two bus lines running? And one's going there. Hell is not so much a curse word as it is a destination. Remember that. And the reality was that there is a hell. And we, we decided several things, Ed, in our, in our small group, if you'll remember that night, and it, it was true. Not only is hell real, but Jesus talked about it, and he talked about that it was eternal torment. Put those two words together in your mind. He also said that it's not annihilation. You're, do you realize if you literally now go to hell, that's not annihilation. Hell is one and done. And the reality is that it's not remedial. Do you get that? It's not going to be like one of these days God says, okay, you've had enough, let's go. No. It doesn't work like that. It's not a kingdom, uh, part of God's kingdom. It never will be. And let me just tell you, let me just dismiss this myth. Satan is not the warden of hell. Satan will be an inmate. You get it? That has nothing to do with the sermon today. That was free. So back to the question. The question was commendable, okay? But if, when you look at it, you immediately recognize three flaws or three words that are flawed, okay? An adjective, a noun, and a verb. The adjective being good, the noun being deed, and the, wor and the verb being do. And Jesus unconventionally presses on this guy and he challenges it, him because you get a good look at verse 16. You get your first look, if you will, at this guy's heart. And Jesus begins to challenge this thing of, okay, is there something worthy that I can do? And so Jesus presses in on this. So look at verse 17. And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, uh, enter life, uh, keep the commandments. Translated into English, that first sentence sounds like this. So, why are you asking me? And then he, he begins, you, you begin to see this back and forth question, answer, reaction thing that this conflict begins to go between the two of them, and sandwiched in there, he makes this great statement. There's two statements that we'll get to. In the very first one, he makes this great statement about God, and he says in there, look in 17, 
the last part says, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. Here's your first statement that Jesus makes about God that's got to stick with this guy. Now, I'm going to ask you, do you think that this rich young ruler, this kid, this guy, knew who he was talking about? Yes, he did. Why? It's a Jewish conversation. Okay? There is only one who is good. This kid understood that. He knew who Jesus was talking about. He was talking about God at that point, okay? So it's a Jewish conversation. You have to keep that in mind. This kid knew that. So Jesus lays down this important premise about God, and he's starting to move him toward thinking, okay, so you're asking me, is there something that you can do that's, quote, good, when there's only one who is good? Think carefully how you choose your words, okay? Okay? Jewish conversation now, not English, Jewish conversation. Did he know? Yes. So Jesus is throwing out the caution flag before we get going. And he says, okay, he plays along and he says, keep the commandments. So you've had the first hint of this guy's heart, and now you get the first hint of the impossible. Do you see it? He says, okay, you want eternal life? Keep the commandments. Fulfill the law. At this point, if you're in the crowd, <clears throat> you need to be leaning forward thinking, how are you going to answer this one? Okay? The reality is he knows what Jesus is talking about, but let's move on and see what he says. He said, being the rich young ruler, which one? Stop right there. At this point, the folly is beginning to be exposed. Do you see that? Jesus is drawing out of him, not in an external way, but in an internal way. He wants him to examine his heart because it's a heart issue, okay? And he's drawing that out of him. And comparatively speaking, in this kid's mind, he was rich, he was young, he was Jewish. Ah, you know, things are going good, I'm a good Jew. And the folly that's being exposed is, number one, he wants to do something more than what the law says, okay, some extraordinary work, something that God will owe him, if you will, and say, hey, nice job. Good job, kid. I like that. I like what you're doing here. But then the second thing, he says, which ones? Okay, now, I don't think Jesus chose to speak sarcasm like I do. Okay, my answer at that point would have been a six-syllable word. What? <laughs> Which ones? You realize when you ask that question what you imply, don't you? That there's some you can leave out. I would have said, okay, keep one, two, six, seven, and nine, and you're good. Is that really? I mean, I, to me, it was like, I can't believe where this kid's going with it, but Jesus handled it differently. In fact, over in Mark, you can see this. Look what he says. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. He had compassion upon him at that time. He was looking for a heart issue. He wasn't looking to embarrass the guy. He was looking to get to his heart. Okay? And basically, the question becomes, are you, really, do you, are, are you good enough? Look at verses 18 and 19. Let's finish it up. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, 
You shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so the guy says which ones, and Jesus rips off five of the top ten, okay, and then throws in Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. What I find interesting about the passage here was that he left out the first five. The ones that says, no other gods before me. The ones that says, no idols. The one that says, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain and keep the Sabbath. And what about number 10, don't covet? That's the ones I would have used, but not Jesus. So verse 20, look at him. He says, the young man said to him, all these... I have kept, what do I still lack? All of these I've kept. Why do I still have this void in my heart? Again, he basically said, yep, done that. And in the Jewish conversation in his mind, not only in his mind, but in the mind of those around him, he was a good Jew. How do you know that? We had some element of favor with God because he was what? Really rich. He was in charge. He had some element, if you will, of authority. What I would have expected at this point was somebody looking at their heart saying, God, I, I can't keep all of these. And by the way, do you know how I would know that? If he was a good Jew, did he still offer a sin sacrifice? Maybe. I would have brought that up. Jesus didn't. And if you were offering a sin sacrifice, it's because of what? You couldn't keep what? The law. But Jesus isn't like that. Okay? He keeps pressing in a different direction. And I want you to understand, I would be looking for this guy to say, Jesus, I'm a complete, miserable, stinking failure. What do I lack? For me, I would have looked, I would have invented glasses at that point only so I could look over them. <laughs> no other reason. And I looked at him and I said, seriously? Or my new favorite word that you can make anything sarcastic with. Are you ready for this? Apparently, <laughs> you're the Jew of the year. Okay, you know what I'm saying? Logic tells me that he didn't keep that. You know that. I know that. Jesus knew that. But again, Jesus was looking at the heart. And he's pushing this guy to examine himself. And in verse 20, he's saying that literally. He says, I'm still lacking something. Can you tell it's a heart issue? Verse 21. Jesus said to him, If you would be Perfect. Okay, let's stop right there because you need to understand what he said in Jewish mindset. Okay? Uh, before he unloads the wagon, he said, okay, if you want to be whole, W H O L E, if you want to be mature, if you want to be perfect, and the word there means 
in the Greek really exactly what it means in English, okay? Uh, if, you, if you translate that literally, it means the limit to which a thing ceases to be, okay? In other words, there's no more in progress. Do you see that? The in progress thing has gone away. It's complete. It's mature. It's perfect. Okay? And Jesus says, okay, if you want to be perfect, and Luke and Mark record this one line in there that says, you lack one thing. Okay, so your ears need to be going up at this point. In fact, I think his did. Because he's thinking in his mind, I'm down to one. Which is what he was looking for, wasn't it? What do I lack? Jesus says you're down to one thing. And then the two big issues that come out. Number one, he's going to expose this guy's heart. Number two, he's going to give him the answer. Here it is. Jesus backs the truck up. And here we go. Go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. There it is, number one. He exposes the guy's heart. Now let me ask you, before you go any further, is Jesus saying, if you go and sell everything, Dean, that you'll have eternal life. Is that what he's saying? No. No. Jesus is not putting out a new command. He's not saying that you can earn eternal life. The emphasis here is, here's what is in your heart. Here's what owns you. Okay? I'm not talking about Dean. Here's what owns you. Here's your heart. The first thing I'm going to do is I want you to examine your heart, so I'm going to put it on the table for you. You want to know what you lack? First of all, go sell everything that you own. Give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. That is not the route to salvation, okay? What he's doing is exposing the symptom of the disease. He's exposing his heart. He wants him to examine it. And the way the sentence is written in the Greek, the emphasis of the sentence, the highlight, if you will, of the sentence is not sell your stuff. Guess what it is? It's the last part. Here's the emphasis. Here's the highlight of the entire conversation. Remember, the conversation was about what? Eternal life. Absolutely. And so here it is. Jesus answers the question. He says, come, follow me. There it is. There's the highlight of the entire conversation. He exposes the guy's heart, and then he gives him the answer, the emphasis of the entire passage right there. Come, follow me. So what's happened? Jesus has exposed something that he's already talked about. He's saying, you know what? You've got somebody else or something else ruling your heart. Anybody remember this passage? Jesus said this. He said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will be 
hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Sound familiar? He's already thrown this out, and he's telling this guy, your heart's divided. By the way, just as an aside, you remember the first four or five commandments that Jesus left out? Guess what just hit the table? No other gods before me. No idols. Not taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. Keeping the Sabbath holy. Don't covet. Do you realize that those five just hit the table? And this guy's heart's exposed. Let me ask you. Was Jesus condemning wealth? No. That wasn't the issue. You can... Talk about Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, David, Solomon. Solomon could buy and sell us 20 times over. That wasn't the issue. The issue was this kid's void. It was a symptom of the disease, and the disease was the fact that his possessions owned him. He didn't own the possessions. Do you get it? That was the point. He was owned by something else. This was the barrier that came between him and God, and he couldn't get his heart satisfied because of the barrier. He couldn't get enough there. It was a heart issue. It was a priority issue, and he was unable to follow the command of Christ because of this, because his heart was owned by something else. His entire mindset of, can I do something can I have a good deed that God is going to look at me and say, oh, well done, kid. That's close enough, good enough. I like what you're doing here. It's impossible. And Jesus is exposing this to him. The reality is that he could not do a, a deed good enough. He could not be good enough. And the emphasis was made, follow me. Well, we've had the emphasis now. Let's see how the rest of it plays out, how life changes after that. Look at verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful. The word for, you can substitute the word because, right? He had great possessions. So his heart's exposed. That's not a happy ending, is it? In fact, this is one of the few times recorded in the scripture when you see someone come to Jesus, ask for help, what have you, and go away sad. I'm not saying that there wasn't other instances. I'm just saying one of the few times that you'll see this. You'll see a lot of people come to Jesus and go away mad. But this guy went away sad, okay? There's a difference. Why? Do you know? Well, he knew it. He knew that his heart was owned by something else. His heart was ungenerate, unregenerate. And now instead of coming to Jesus, he's leaving Jesus. And can I tell you that unless this kid came around later on, and we don't know what we don't know, okay, keep that in mind. But unless he came around at best... He's the richest guy in the cemetery. You get it? That's it. At best, 
he probably became the rich, richest guy in the cemetery because he could not do anything good enough to win God's favor. Do you see that? That's what he really wanted. What happens next is strictly Jewish, okay? You need to understand that this sent shock waves through those standing around. Literally sent shock waves through everybody. Why? Because in their mind, if you were rich and you had some element, if you will, of authority, that you were favored by God, right? That was a Jewish reality, if you will. And guess what? Jesus knew that, and he addressed it. So let's look at it. Verse 23 and 24. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The one thing that I want you to keep in mind, and remember the subject was what? Eternal life. Okay. Jesus did not bend the rules. Okay? Jesus did not bend the rules. As Jewish guys go, this guy was probably pretty good. In his mind, he had kept the commandments as best he could. Apparently, he thought he was favored by God because he had many possessions. He was a ruler, blah, blah. But then Jesus addresses what's on everybody's mind because he's saying that this guy's riches had become an obstacle and they, be, they were his security, and it was an idol. And again, Jesus is smashing every Jewish expectation. Look what the Proverbs say. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs to it and is safe. But look at the second part. A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall, his what? imagination do you see where this kid's imagination was his security and the question is would you rather have the name of the Lord as a strong tower or your imagination and the reality is he uses this hyperbole just to make this point and the point is it is impossible for you to do something good to earn salvation, just like what Bruce said this morning. He points to the impossible. Don't get caught up in this whole business of, well, what's the eye of a needle? Was that a gate? And then, I don't know, it could have been. Who cares, okay? I'll probably get in trouble for that comment. Theologians debate some things. I'm thinking, drop it. Think about it. The smallest thing they can think of to try to go through and the one of the biggest animals hanging out there. And Jesus said, it's easier for that thing to go through this thing. Okay? That was the hyperbole. What he was saying is, it's impossible. Do you get it? It's impossible. 
in their mind, in their heart. He's making this. What's impossible? Eternal life that's earned, something you can do. Look at what the revelation says. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Imagine that. Clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice. Look at it. Salvation belongs to who? Our God, who sits on the throne, and to who? The Lamb. Who does salvation belong to? God, the Savior, Christ Jesus. It's not something for us to earn. It's something for Him to gift. Do you see it? Verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? What is this? It was a natural reaction. Again, they were Jewish. Wealthy guy. Couldn't make it into heaven. And they're sitting there saying, I got nothing. Literally. I got nothing. I got nothing. There's no favor with God for me. I got nothing. How can anyone be saved? The answer to the question? Exactly. That's the answer. You see, the subject, again, was eternal life. It's back on the table. This time with the disciples. And the disciples asked the question, who then can be saved? Quickly, I just want you to note that wealth and power, the most intoxicating drink on the planet, is power. Okay? And this guy was wealthy, bulletproof at a young age. All of this stuff deadens our notion toward God's. It lures us into this false reality that somehow or another I can do something good enough. We become self-indulgent, self-reliant, Self-important, and unfortunately, there's a sense of self-security that we have around us when we have stuff. And that's a dangerous position before God. In the presence of a holy God, people scoff at the reality of heaven and eternal life. And can I tell you that these things become poison to the soul? Verse 26. But Jesus looked at them, looked at the disciples, and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Do you remember we talked about imperative statements that were kind of framed up this entire thing? The first statement, do you remember, was only God is good. Do you remember that? He knew it. He knew what he was talking about. Only the triune God is worthy. Okay? Worthy in eternal life. He's perfect, sinless. And then just followed by the stunning rejection of this rich young rulers, and then the disciples standing there, there with their mouth wide open saying then, who qualifies? Well, I don't get it. Who qualifies? And now Jesus explaining it all. He says, with this, with man, it's impossible. What is this? What was the subject? Eternal life. Okay, with man, it's what? It's impossible. 
You can't do enough. There's nothing you can do. Get your hands around that. The best person you know, the, the, the person that, that keeps the rules, it seems to be the most deserving, don't qualify. It's impossible by our efforts, by our merit, by our resources to win the favor of God. It cannot be done. Look what Paul says in Romans. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, what? It cannot. Does that say, does that scream impossible to you? Those who in the flesh cannot please God. The initial question was, what good deed could I do? It can't be done. Do you see it? It's not good enough. But here's the second statement that he makes about God. The first one being, remember, only God is good. But here's the second statement. But with God, all things are possible. That means that salvation is possible by God. Abandoning all is possible by God. Do you see that? Having your heart changed so that it's not given to our possessions. It's not given to uh, our passions. It's not given to, and this is going to hurt, people. But it's given to God. Now Jesus points to the good God who does the impossible. And he moves the impossible to possible. And do you know what the link between impossible and possible is? It's called a miracle. It's called a miracle. Salvation is a miracle. Do you get it? God does the impossible for you and I. Here's how it happens. You want to know how you get through the eye of the needle? See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then in Corinthians, Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what also received that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in according with the scripture. And then he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Anybody seeing anything up there about a good deed? Do you see what Jesus did? The impossible that we could not do. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that any man can boast. It's a faith issue. It's a heart issue. The good God does the good deed through the good Son to gift us with what is impossible for us to do, and that is save ourself. The point that Matthew is making is that man does need salvation. But there's a righteousness that God demands far beyond what we can muster ourselves. The only thing that we can do is have faith in the one who fulfilled the law for us because we can't. He imparted that to us. Simply put, Jesus says, okay, you want to know what you lack? Come follow me. So how's that translate for you and I? Number one, don't ever confuse sincerity, morality, philanthropy, 
or good deeds as some element of credit for salvation or a path to salvation. That's the world's mentality. You get that? How many times have you heard, you know what, I get to heaven, and God will look at me, and the good, and the bad, and you were a good guy, okay, that's good enough, come on in. No. Jesus made that abundantly clear. That's not it. Pastor Grant at this point would say, you're way worse than what you think. Okay? Paul put it like this. For by works of the law, no human being uh, will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. People say, well, all you got to do is clear the bar. No, I'm telling you, you can't see the bar. You can't see it. Number two, anything you try to add to salvation is called works. The guy's saying, what else can I do? Do you realize that you can't add anything to what Jesus has already done? You trying to add something to it is called works. And the, and the, the trap that believers fall into, okay, uh, let's move away from non-believers for just a second. Saying, you know, I can work, I can, yeah, good enough. Okay, God say, well, you're a pretty good guy. Let's move away from that for just a second. Do you know the trap that the believers fall into? Is that I can do some really good things, and therefore God will keep my salvation. Really? Remember, you invent the glasses? Seriously? That's the trap we fall into. Look how good I am. Look what I've done, Bruce. And therefore, God owes me something. Got a little credit coming here at the pearly gates. No. Be very careful. Let me just give you three things that are going to happen when you fall into that trap. Listen closely. Write them down. Number one, you'll never be satisfied. Your heart will never be satisfied. Number two, your heart will never be satisfied. Number three rhymes with one and two. Your heart will never be satisfied. Do you get it? Can't do it. Jesus has made that abundantly clear. It's a trap. It's impossible to save yourself. And finally, be very careful with what or whom you give your heart to. Be it your possessions, your passions, or people. Because those things can become a barrier between you and your relationship with God, especially when he says, follow me. The subject was eternal life. The answer was, follow the one who fulfilled the law for you, trusting him, depending on his good work at Calvary. Let the scriptures say what the scriptures say. The scripture says, Jesus said, follow me. Not man, not doctrine, not denomination. Whether it's by grace through faith, follow him, his way, his truth, his words. 
Let me ask you something. <clears throat> Do you remember the slides? Do you remember those? Little balconies, the receptacle, the tattoo, the playground. Those are your works. Those are my works. That's what I did. Hey, God, is that good enough? You asked for a playground. You asked for the receptacle to be close to the kitchen sink. Okay, so there was only one window that was off. Good enough? I think you know the answer. Not even close. Impossibly off the mark. Therefore, Jesus says, follow me, the good one, who's done the impossible for you and me. It's a faith issue. It's a heart issue that satisfies. It satisfies that longing of your heart. And let me guarantee you something quickly. You, if you do that, you will not go away sad. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for doing what we could not do. We cannot save ourselves, but yet you did. Lord, it's more than I can take in that you would even begin to say to me, I love you, and this is what I did for you. Father, I pray that with all my heart that... Uh, we look to you and you alone for salvation and realize that uh, you are the good God who's done the good deed through the good son. I'm not even close, but yet you loved me. Thank you. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen.